This is an ABC podcast. When Diana Nguyen was growing up on the outskirts of Melbourne, she loved performing, loved being on the stage. And that meant music lessons, the school band, the local carol service, and leading the other kids in dancing the nutbush at the school fete. And at first, her mum encouraged all of this. In fact, she was even more passionate about karaoke than Diana was. But that all changed once Diana was old enough to start planning for a career, which to her mum meant medicine or law or, at a stretch, accounting. You see, Diana's parents were Vietnamese refugees who'd escaped the country in the early 1980s. And Diana's mum wanted the absolute best for her kids born free in Australia. And the best did not involve tutus or comedy or nutbush city limits. And so the stage was set for an epic mother-daughter battle. Hi, Diana. Hello. Well, thanks for having me on. It's our pleasure. Tell me about the kind of music you remember hearing in your house growing up. What, what was your mum listening to? Oh, it was corny pop Vietnamese music <laughs> that you would cringe. Very, what we would term it, fresh off the boat music. I think the 90s, Ace of Bass, Girlfriend, Backstreet Boys, that was the cool pop, but home Vietnamese pop wasn't, um, you shouldn't market it and, and share it with your friends. <laughs> what sort of karaoke setup did your mum have? Oh, my mother had... She spent thousands of dollars on it. This is like a full system, like a full uh, hi-fi system, double speakers, microphone. And back then we had laser discs, which were bigger than the DVD. You know, they're like vinyl, but CDs. And I'm surprised these didn't die or break because the amount of times we played on repeat uh, in our home uh, was extraordinary. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Were you allowed to get on this system as a kid or was it, you know, strictly adults only? Oh, no, no. It was family time. For me growing up, because mum's a single mum raising three kids, I just remember this was our family bonding time and mum would always have her camcorder out and video, video cameras uh, and film us, sorry, and showing us performing to her and so that she can send it back to Vietnam to her family because like 90% of my family, my mum's family is still in Vietnam. So it was my my mum's way to send my grandmother footage of us because we were her only grandchildren that were outside of Vietnam. What part of Melbourne were you growing up in, Diana? Uh, the southeast, uh, Springvale, which is the only eastern mecca where Vietnamese people reside. There's Footscray and there's Richmond, which is five kilometres from the Melbourne CBD. But somehow Melbourne, because it had the one of the hostels, the Springville Enterprise, where my parents met, um, they stayed there. And so many generations of Vietnamese ref refugees and their children continually go to Springvale, live in Springvale, go buy the cheap groceries in Springvale, buy the bubble teas in Springvale. <laughs> like, they don't leave. And that's why houses in Springvale are very expensive um, because they've just stayed put and they just keep buying in the same area. <laughs> what did your dad do for work when you were growing up, before your parents split? My dad was, like, the number one <laughs> Springvale driving instructor and the the name of the driving school was Diana and Lim 
driving school. And back in the 90s, you know, you didn't have websites to promote your businesses, but you had those flip-up signs on top of your roof of your car. So everywhere in Springvale, my name and my dad's name was just driving around um, the streets. And so my dad was the most popular Springvale driving instructor and I still have my friend's parents still saying to me, oh, your dad taught me. And so my dad, because his, his English was quite good and he was quite young for a driving instructor, you know, there's, you know, driving instructors are perceived to be a bit older and, you know, wiser. But my dad was in his early 30s having this driving school um, and he just attracted a, a full clientele of Vietnamese refugees, people who wanted their licence. What kind of instructor was he? Do you know? Like, was he was he of that on that tough end of the spectrum, or a, a more easygoing approach? Because it's a pretty fraught experience learning to drive. Definitely, because in Vietnam you ride motorbikes, and so you know, for any Vietnamese refugee to have a car is is highlighting your wealth. So, my dad was very charismatic, uh, very charismatic man. I think it was very easygoing to the point where. It's, possibly illegal uh it is um that I remember my dad would let me sit on his lap while he drove and I would steer and, and he would do the pedals because I couldn't reach the pedals but I remember doing that when I was seven eight years old and you know I, I kind of took on his lead and became an uber driver um, a couple of years ago you mentioned that your mum and dad met in the hostel when they came here as refugees from Vietnam what do you know about their relationship about the early days of their romance? Uh, from what I know, uh, and because my mother's uh, retelling is quite jagged, it's um, it's not story time in my family to talk about that experience they had. So what I can recall is that they met in 1984 at the Springwell Enterprise, which was a hostel for refugees who have just come to Australia. It was one of the places where they were introduced to Australian life and had those English classes and, you know, how to use a fridge or a microwave. And all I know is that they did move to Northcote, so they, they did move around <laughs> uh, as young lovers, but they ended up raising their children in the southeastern, so Clayton, Westall, Springvale, and that's where my childhood is. All I can remember, yeah, it's quite interesting because it was such a turbulent time growing up watching these two kids be in love and call it love. It's very strange for me to even have a happy memory because I, I know there was so much happening underneath. Mm. I can't really say if it was romantic or just a little side story is that um, that my dad never signed my birth certificate <laughs> and so I'm a bastard child. <laughs> yeah, so um, my parents never actually married. Um, they were de facto's. And they'd both come clearly from different kinds of real trauma as refugees coming from yes. Vietnam, leaving a war. I mean, what, how did that play out in terms of what things were like at home between them, do you think? Did that play a part? I, I've come to understand about the psychology of war and uh, about self-awareness and how you control that. And because I came from a domestic violent home, and both parents were part of that as well. It wasn't just my dad or just my mum. It was just these two refugee kids who came because they were fearful of their lives and then they met each other and they had this shared commonality 
they were both Vietnamese, they spoke the same language and there, there was an attraction. But when it came to communication and expressing feelings and especially being Vietnamese, we don't tell people how we are. That's not part of our language, you know, it's not our love language if I had to term it that. And so the my house was kind of like um, minefield. It was just bombs blasting. You didn't know when it happened. I just have a recall of it. It was just a very unsafe place for us. And unfortunately, during my primary school age, uh, like grade two, grade three, grade four, I just remembered being uprooted by the police at night and my mum being putting family refuge, women's refuge homes where they felt it was safer for us to be for a night or two or maybe for three months, um, which was one of my longest stints in a, um, a women's refuge home. One of the places your mum and sisters would sometimes go when things exploded at home was a local mm. nunnery. What do you remember yes. about that? Oh, I'm one of my happiest memories as a kid. Oh, I'm getting emotional because my sister actually moved a block away uh, to uh, close to this old nunnery. And she like she she just chose to move to Cheltenham and, and lives a block away from where we were for three months. So um during the placement of putting us in a safe haven, I went to a very white school where I was the only Vietnamese girl at Cheltenham Heights Primary School and you know I was also processing my identity in that but I do remember um, being in this nunnery with Sister Penelope who became like my godmom and I just remembered like we had this really beautiful process and I know people might find it very normal but I just remember we had lunch and dinner at the dining table um, we would go pick berries for the jam um, she had this beautiful garden where it was a vegetable garden and I just remembered butterflies flying and, and you know, I do talk about this one morning of being in the garden with Sister Penelope and, and hearing music coming across from the church next door. And I asked her, like, what is that sound? And she said, oh, that's the ballet classes that happen, that happen during the weekend. And I said... I want to go see it. So my mum and I and Sister Penelope, we went next door to the church and through the window was a ballet dance class. And this was me at seven years old who'd, uh, you know, loved dancing when I was at home in the living room, but I saw these ballet girls who were in their, their shoes and their hairs well done and it was, they were dancing to classical music. And something in that moment where I'm so grateful that my mum did it for me because um, she enrolled me and what's mind-boggling is that she didn't have the money to do it but she made sure I did it and although my mum's always been fighting against me in my career <laughs> it's just one of those moments where you go mum you saved my life <laughs> and I, I have to say that by allowing me to have professional classes it really shifted my brain from just being you know, the amateur dancer at a nightclub or, you know, whatever. But it just allowed me to really ground my roots and that's why I really appreciate education in the arts because it just really grounded me and said, oh, I can do this and I can be good at it and be recognised. And so, yeah, I was a ballet, a Vietnamese ballet girl <laughs> in this very white ballet school. <laughs> 
so dancing. You, your mum must have, despite everything else that was going on in her life, she must have really seen in you that spark that lit up when you saw those dances or heard that music. I definitely think so. I think I think with the um, experiences that we were having in my family at that moment, I felt maybe my mum saw something she hadn't seen for a while and she just went, maybe my daughter needs something to take her mind off it. And she did. Yeah, I'm so grateful that she saw, you know, mother and daughter, she saw something and gave me a gift. What other memories do you have, performance memories from your childhood, uh, Diana? What are the kind of stage scenes that stand out in your mind when you think back to early performing, Diana? Oh, I, I've, I've done a lot. Um, <laughs> I've, I've perform, performed uh, at lunchtime at school. I was always a head performer in my school fates at St Joseph's, uh, which was the primary school I went to. But I think one of the fun memories I have is when um, I was given the head role, the lead role of the Hunchback of Notre Dame mm. uh, at my girls' school, <laughs> uh, girls' secondary college that I went to, uh, I actually had um, auditioned for Esmeralda, uh, but I ended up getting the Hunchback of Notre Dame. <laughs> and that's been my whole life. I will never be the pretty gypsy. I won't ever uh, get to play, you know, the, the hot-looking protagonist, but I will be the, um, the Hunchback. You'll be and a fabulous Hunchback. <laughs> and I was a fabulous Hunchback. <laughs> So it started off with your mum really encouraging and it sounds kind of delighting in this side of you and and supporting it as best she could. How did that change and when did that change? Yeah, it hit probably in year 10 and I think it's that transition from secondary to senior year, you know, and I just remember my mum going, where's the maths subjects or science subjects for year 11 and year 12? And... By this time, it was just too late. Um, I had picked history, <laughs> uh, psychology, uh, drama was my number one subject. Uh, and I, I do feel, and, it, and you know, talking about the school productions, I think my mum, when she saw me in my first school production in year 10, she was like, oh, no, no. No, what is she? What is she doing? She's dancing as a bongoli and having a lead song, and people are clapping her, and we shouldn't be feeding this this monster. Yes, and then, and you know, I do talk about like my mum leaving halfway through my show. So tell me about that. What What do you remember happening? Oh, the trauma you're bringing up, (laughs) the memories. Yeah, it was. So in year ten, I was I had a not a lead. Uh, like I did in The Hunchback in Year 12, but I had a good part in a a musical and I just remember at interval because we had to run across the schoolyard to get into the green room and I remember running across, I still see it today, my mum's car driving out of the driveway and I I remember it it shattered me and I didn't, um, I remember that afternoon when she picked us up and I remember at the door, her opening the front door, I wanted to say, why did you leave? But I I kept that inside of me. Uh, And then it happened again when I was in university. She left halfway during my university musical. 
because uh, we were outside during <laughs> interval and I saw her walk out and I realised at that moment that I was never going to ask my mum to come see any of my shows again because uh, it just wasn't worth it for my mental health. What, what uh, was she saying with that, Diana? What message was she, was she giving you by, by coming and then leaving? At that time, I thought she was bored and disappointed in me. Now in my 30s, I realised my mum possibly did not understand a word I was saying or what the show she was watching. Um, and that's what I've, I've, I've come to is that she... Her upbringing wasn't the arts and she didn't realise it was rude to leave halfway. Um, my mother will love me in a different way and she will not be, you know, the typical white parent who sits in the front row with their camcorder clapping their kids or, you know, putting up them up for agencies and managers and all that. And that, that's my responsibility. And I realise that my mother has done the best she can as a mum and I had to let that go, that she can't be that front row mum. <laughs> Was she also scared that in f pursuing this, this kind of thing that you loved, you were going to not find a job, not find security, be, be at risk of all the things she'd struggled to, to provide for you and your sisters? Yeah, it's exactly that. Like, you come on a boat, you come here with nothing and you're slaving away. My auntie, I remember... I used to help her, was sewing labels on pants for 10 cents per label. And my mum was working in a factory, raising three kids on her own. She was making side money uh, to support us. And I remember we were, like, packing, you know, um, golf stuff, <laughs> which is for very rich people. And, and a, a pack would a pack that we would put together would be $2, but they'll sell it for $99. And I, I know... I know now that my mum didn't want me to struggle. She didn't want me to have to do what she, she was doing for us to have a good life. And I think that's why education has been so important for her to get us through, that, that we got to that line. Like she made sure that we got to that finishing point, that we had our degrees. And my mum proudly hangs our five degrees in her house. Um, and I, I totally understand why... She didn't want us to to bear her her hardship, mm. and I'm very grateful that she pushed us on her own to be where we are now. And all this was happening, of course, in the broader context of being a Vietnamese Australian in the 1990s. Mm. How old were you, Diana, when Pauline Hanson gave her infamous maiden speech to Parliament in 1996, oh. talking about? Being Australia being in danger of being swamped by Asians. Oh, I just got shivers over here. <laughs> Every time we mention a name, I'm like, oh, how is she still relevant? I was 11 years old and um, I wish Pauline Hanson knew how she shaped my dual identity as, as a Vietnamese Australian woman because the moment she spoke and said that Asians were swarming and that we were of a different kind or to the Australian uh, people, I decided that I was no longer going to be Vietnamese and that I was going to be Australian. And unfortunately, I have, I still mourn today the loss of my native tongue, my mother's language, Vietnamese. I can, I can speak it, but it's very bogan. 
Um, it's, it has no nuance at all. I can't recite poetry. I can't tell my mum that I'm so happy and deeply in love with a man uh, and, and share her that nuance of love. Um, and so Pauline Hanson contributed to me breaking away from myself and, you know, I became really, really white. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I don't, look, uh, I don't know if you know many uh, Vietnamese Australian women who will go to the cricket by themselves. <laughs> <laughs> going to the cricket? Uh, well, in year eight, I... Like, so my mum my, my was quite strict with boys uh, and so during the summer break, because the cricket was on all all summer, <laughs> I would watch the cricket and I, I learnt the rules. I learnt the players like Healy, Taylor, Bevan, Ponting. I was watching cricket religiously and when I was 18, I was able to buy tickets and watch one-day games and watch test cricket. Like I was a rare <laughs> creature at the MCG. <laughs> and so I really push the simulation into sports and um, like I'm a member of the Hawthorne Football Club and I just really revved up this Australian, you know, Aussie, 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 going to the football and having a meat pie and and really breaking away from my traditional Vietnamese self, which is, you know, we, we've got our Vietnamese cultural music and we've got our Vietnamese, uh, our custom dress, the language, the music, as I told you already, I I already thought it was cringy. I I just didn't want to associate myself to to that. And I, yeah, I really pulled myself away and it was because of one woman. That little 11-year-old who heard those words in Parliament, so part of it was then trying to make yourself this uber- Aussie and thinking that meant mm. sport and meat pies. Did it also leave you with fear about what might happen to your family, happen to you, your mum who wasn't born in Australia the way you and your sisters were? Yeah, so I can vividly recall this moment when I was um, having a shower as an 11-year-old and going, oh, my God, my mum's going to be sent back to Vietnam because she's not Australian. Uh and I, I just, and I, in c- contributing to that and Pauline Hanson and, and my identity as a teenager, uh, I was like, well, then I better ocker up. Like, I better prove to everyone that, that um, we are Australian and that um, and, and Vietnamese culture isn't cool. And, and, you know, there was the stigma of, you know, Vietnamese um, refugees who weren't a quotation like assimilating and you know the drug um, and taking the jobs like I just wanted to break that away and I, I think it also contributed to my relationship with my mum that I kind of lost respect for her as well because she wasn't supporting my my arts dream because that's you know that's what we do as Australians we we um, support all kinds of dreams not just because you need want to be a doctor or make money and so all of that was a collision um, that I'm repairing now. How did that explode or what happened for you to leave <laughs> home at 18? Yeah, it was a collision course because, um, you know, when you're 16, 17, 18, uh, you meet some man, uh, another fellow teenage boy, you fall in love. And in my culture, we have this tendency where you belong to the family and then you get passed on to the man. And unfortunately, I'm Australian. (laughs) And I was like, well, I can do whatever I want because 
Uh, I can fall in love with anyone I want and I can do whatever I want. And that was a massive conflict with my mother to the point where, unfortunately, one morning when I was 18, um, she found my first boyfriend hiding in the closet uh, naked. Oh, and um, and uh, my mother, um, she, she didn't open the closet, but she knew she, he was in there. And um, she messaged me and said, you better leave this house now. Mm. And so I I didn't see that as a warning. I just thought, oh, mum's just angry. Went to uni, came home, and my mother had put all of my belongings uh, in the backyard. Everything. And I... I was shell-shocked because this is a big move from an Asian mother. Like, you, you try to keep your kids at home. But she... And, you know, generally if you're... You don't usually kick your child out. You might ground them or tell them off, but this was my mother's action. And so I remember taking my few belongings that I could take in my hand and I have to say that moment my mother freed me from her. Um, she freed me from the cultural expectations. She she cut the circuit of me belonging to her and, like, it was not about me leaving her now. It's about her cutting me out of her life. And so that was a momentous thing that my mother did and I'm so glad she did it. <laughs> like that ballet class when I was um, seven years old, that she cut it for me and... I don't think I would be the artist I am or the, the person I am if she hadn't freed me and taken me out of that cage. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. You knew, Diana, that your parents had met as refugees, but how mm. much had your mum told you about her story and where she came from when you were growing up? Her retelling of her past and her journey has been scattered memories, and it's never been a sit down, this is my story, you know. It's not like the book, this is this is my life and I'm going to tell you from beginning to end. My mother was strange. Like when she would meet strangers, she would just blurt out something that happened on the boat, which I had never heard before, but she would just tell a stranger. And so my recollection of her story is very scattered as well. But yeah, in my early 20s, after finishing my Bachelor of Arts and you know, managing my performance at night and working in many numerous jobs. One of the jobs I decided to work in was um, in community development with refugees, uh, young people in the southeastern suburbs where I came from. And I, I was empathetic to their needs and their struggles. And I thought if I could help them the way that my mother wasn't helped, then I could and make it easier for them and not have their stories hidden for 20 or so years, like my mother's story, but have them come out now. Mm. And because of that work, I was became very curious about my mum's story. And I remember this big trip that I did when I was 25. I decided 
My mother escaped Vietnam. Now it's time for me to discover what Vietnam is. And I've done numerous little trips to Vietnam, but I decided, you know what, I'm going to backpack with some friends from the south of Vietnam to the north of Vietnam and just figure out what this country is, this Hmm. motherland that she had decided to leave. What stood out for you or what stands out to you when you think back about that trip? What memories or images or experiences do you you really hold on to when you think back about that trip? Well, in Vietnam, they've got these um, special sleeping buses where you don't sit up but you lie down like on a triple-decker. And I just remember travelling town from town, how beautiful Vietnam was and how each each town has its own heart and that every town, like you go to Hoi An and it's got this French colonialism and then you go to Nang, which is mountains and, and, and green, and then you go to Hue, which is the imperial, uh, you know, uh, the, the history, our political history is in Hue, the, the royal family, and then you go up to um, Sapa and you have the tribal girls singing you a bird song as you leave in the morning. And for me, I just felt like I I heard the heartbeat of Vietnam and I really understand why leaving or fleeing Vietnam was so heartbreaking for my mum because she was leaving her heartbeat. And here I was getting to experience Vietnam on a budget and Vietnam is amazing. (laughs) When you're 25 and an artist, I got to enjoy Vietnam Uh, for its simplicity uh, of, you know, the people. And I know people find people coming up, knocking your windows, telling you to buy something annoying, (laughs) very annoying. But I just loved it because that's how what Vietnamese people are. We are hustlers. (laughs) And I really do believe that's in me and my whole career and the way that my my people have been so so self-reliant in Australia is that we hustle and that's our language. (laughs) But, yeah, so for me it was just just to appreciate how beautiful this country is. Which part of Vietnam had your mum grown up in? Um, So my mother is an hour south of Saigon, Ho Chi Minh City. Um, The town is called Mi Tha and it's on the Mekong Delta and and that's how my mother eventually escaped Vietnam back in in 1983. So what was the plan, Diana, once after this big epic backpacking Mm. trip up the country, you were arriving at your mum's hometown. What was the plan? (laughs) Okay, so the plan was that once I'd done the backpacking trip that I would eventually go back to Mitor with my sister and my mum and we'll just hang out, the three of us. But my sister then messaged me and said, hey, I've got to fly back to Melbourne early. Monash University need me to come back for orientation. You need to hang out with mum. And you don't understand the dread that came through my body (laughs) that I was now going to hang out with my mum for like two weeks. So I messaged my friends and said, what do I do with my mum for two weeks? What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? It was because... My mother and I didn't have language to speak to each other. So after that, she'd kicked you out at at 18. What what have things been like since then? Had you kind of built repaired at all or was it still pretty pretty distant? it It was distant but on repair. Like when I got kicked out, three weeks after I got kicked out, my mother went on her knees and begged me to come back home. And so she did a reverse because she realised, oh, no, I stuffed up. (laughs) I need my daughter home now. I have, 
I, what I did was incorrect. I need to reverse and bring her back home. And so I challenged her. I was like, no, you kicked me out. I'm out. And so it was this tug of war of you belong to me, come back home, I'll take care of you, I've got food, I'll do, you know, this is where your family is, this is where your sisters are, come back home. And so it was that tug of war so many years and then my career choice, like what are you doing with your career, stop this nonsense. And so, you know, that language continued until this point in Mita where I was alone with my mum. And how did and you spend those those two weeks? <laughs> like what did your girlfriend suggest? <laughs> I can't remember what my girlfriend suggested, but it was the first time since my sisters were born that I got to spend alone time with my mum and it was one of the most beautiful, you know, dates that I've had with my mum in my my life. It was the beginning of something really magical and I really believe that that moment when I got to my grandmother's house in Utah and it was just me and my mum. We had to navigate ourselves uh, with each other. But I just remembered that mum and I, we just hung out with each other so much because we didn't have anyone else. But I just remember we had um, gum thumb dates, which was it's, it's a Vietnamese rice dish. And there's this funny, funny thing happened where... I was like, I, I'll take your mum on the motorbike. I'll you, you sit behind me. And I crashed into a pavement. <laughs> and, it, and Vietnam is not loose on traffic. Like everyone sees you do it. And so my mum was like, you get off the motorbike, I will, I will drive. And so around me, Ta, was just this image of this very small Vietnamese woman dinking her full-size daughter <laughs> around me, Ta. Um, so I just have these images of my mum, you know, like, like my mum being my mum, <laughs> you know, like being, going on that ride. And th- there was this one beautiful night, I remember, it was late at night, we were packing our suitcases to go back to Australia. And my my mum started to talk about that night where she had to say goodbye to my grandmother and it was in this house the night before she fled, she came to my grandmother's house and said, Mum, I love you and I'll see you soon, just so that my grandmother didn't know that she was leaving and maybe she might not be able to see my mother again. And my mother had never shared that with me and I just felt like this was the place for her to share me this story in the house that she said goodbye to my grandmother. So, What kind of burden had that been for your mum, do you think, having to leave her own mother without her knowing, without being able to give a, a proper goodbye? I think it's something my mother has re- really struggled because my mother loved her mum. I, I, people say, you know, refugees, they they, they want to come here for a better life financially. They're taking our jobs and all that. But no one wants to leave their family. And so my mother was forced to leave her mother. And all I know is that when my mother dies, she wants to be buried next to her mum. Mm. My mother would never want to leave her home country, her, her mother at all if she didn't need to, but she had to. You know, one day when that does happen, we will honour that and have my grandmother and mother back together mm. again. Did she know. ever get to make it back to Vietnam to see her mum, your grandma, again before she died? 
she did. So in the late 80s, the borders did open up and my mother did go back to see uh, my grandmother. And, you know, uh, our, our house was alive, all the aunties and uncles and cousins. And, you know, there's also video footage of me dancing for my grandmother in her house as well. The camcorder was working <laughs> overtime. And, you know, back in the 90s, our camcorders were massive, you know, on the shoulder uh, camcorders. And uh, I remember that one time my... My mother had to go back to Vietnam uh, immediately because my, my grandmother was on her deathbed and um, my grandmother waited until my auntie and my mum got home and then she passed away. And there is video footage of my grandmother's funeral that my mother still watches because there's uh, certain cultures for funeral preparations and burial and uh, in our culture is that you have the body in the family home and... My mother, sometimes when I go to her house, she would be playing this video of, of mourning because that's the last time she saw her, her, mother's, her mother's face. You and your mum then had what sounds like a really incredible moment or time together in Vietnam. But mm. she'd still not seen a show of yours all the way through. There was still this part of you, Diana, that she was not willing to come to the party on. Mm. When did that change? Because I made a promise to myself that I would not hurt myself again by letting her do that, by walking out of my shows. There was a time in my acting career that I started doing, I started to perform very um, centric Vietnamese plays. One time I ended up getting a role in Miss Saigon. Um, it was an amateur professional <laughs> the musical theatre uh, in Melbourne and I thought, you know what? I am going to invite my mum and come and see me perform Miss Saigon, which is also problematic because, you know, um, not all Vietnamese are prostitutes. Uh, and that was my role. I was a prostitute and refugee in Miss Saigon. I didn't get the main role uh, at all, which is a trend. But I do remember walking out of Alexander Theatre stage with the applause, taking my bow and then standing up and seeing my mum cry. And it's the image I have that I will have for the rest of my life because um, it was it was like finally she now saw why I did what I do, <laughs> mm. which is performing arts, and because she realised that I... Um, because she couldn't come on stage and tell her story, but that that was my job to do that and to keep her story alive. And I did a um, interview on SBS Vietnamese Radio. I took my mum to the studio and they wanted to talk to my mum because they wanted to find out, like, do you approve of your daughter's <laughs> career choices? And this was a couple of years ago and my mother never articulated this to me, but she decided on live radio <laughs> to say this, um, which was, I'm really proud of Diana for continuing this journey um, because I know how hard it is for her. And I'm proud that she has continued to tell our story and that if this career doesn't work out, I will always have a home for her. And I was just sitting there just gobsmacked, <laughs> just listening oh. to her say that. I know. I was like, Mum, you could have said this in a car conversation. <laughs> but it was just like I think for the first 10 years of my life I've been seeking my mum's approval for my career but now I realise that I now seek my own approval mm. and I do what I love. But it's, it is beautiful to have 
um, your mum believe in you mm. and always provide a home for you if it all doesn't work out. <laughs> <laughs> you don't only perform on traditional <laughs> stages, Diana. Mm. What do you do at hospitals? Well, I became a doctor like my mother always wanted. <laughs> um, so when I was made redundant from my government job, so working with refugees, I was given a redundancy pay and I, this is when I was 31 and I thought, look, I can spend it all on clothes and travel or I can really do something for me. So I decided to go to clown school, uh, a physical theatre school by John Bolton, uh, who is this magical man who gives his gift of teaching the craft that he's so good at, which mm. is clowning and physical theatre. And half of the other money I took to Edinburgh to perform. So I really invested in my career. What mm. are lessons like at clown school? What, what happened? There's f- four months of modules and one month of it is being a clown. And I'm not even kidding you, for five days, for a whole week, you come into class and you do clown exercises and clown games and you try to figure out who you are as a clown. And I know people listening right now are going, oh, no, not the it clown. No, 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 it's not the it clown with white makeup. It's beautiful physical theatre clown. Its origins are from um, France. And it's it's basically the clown sitting in with themselves and being really fully aware of the people around them and giving some joy and lightness in the heavy. And that's what we did how, for a whole month. Just how how playing. did a, a, a game involving opening oh. a door help you find <laughs> your clown? Yes. Well, I'm really good at failing. And um, there's one, there's a very simple exercise, which you could try at home, which is you have put a red nose on and you go through a door and you stand in front of an audience and they receive you. And that's just that's just the exercise. You walk through the door, you stand in front of the audience, and they look at you. And how do I, you fail? How can you fail doing that? I know, I know, but it's something shifts when you put on that red nose. Like something, people can see you're faking it. That that you're you're playing something, but but a clown needs to be vulnerable and open. And so I kept coming out of the door like, "Hey, I'm a clown. I'm funny." But that's not what the exercise is. It's about who are you. So I did it again and again and John Bolden would be like, go back, go back, go back. And I felt like it just reminded me of my mum, I think, (laughs) of telling me off, of like I wasn't good enough maybe, to the point where now I was crying behind the door waiting to go back on for the 20th time. And I decided you know what, I'm going to walk through this door and eat this biscuit. And when I walked through that door in this biscuit, I was already weeping. I was crying. And then the whole room shifted. And that's when I realised and John Bolton realised that I'm a sad clown. <laughs> so what people laughed. That's when they laughed. Yes. When you came crying with the biscuit. Crying out. And who knew? <laughs> that seeing me sad and not sure of who I am and just going, this is me, that that would make people laugh. <laughs> How did you feel about being laughed at in your crying state? I was confused, <laughs> very confused. Because, <laughs> you know, you've been taught doing comedy, 
that uh, to make people laugh. You, you put a persona on, you know, you don't share everyone you. But when you put on this red nose, it shifts everything and you can't hide anymore. You, and, and if you do hide, everyone knows. And so this, this going to school, clown school, led me to one of my great joy jobs, which is clown doctoring for the Humor Foundation. Well, how do you bring that kind of... Uh, sad clown into being a clown doctor. <laughs> Will you turn I up can't. in hospital and make everyone else feel worse? What happens, Diana? Well, well, I think I, I learnt there's a medium to that. So I can't come into the hospital as a sad clown. But I found, I think it just told me that I just needed to be open and, and available and not to put on a persona and just be me. And so, you know, the, the, work, the work that we do in the hospital and please go and check them out, um, the Human Foundation. There are only 70 clown doctors in Australia. It was one of the toughest auditions I've ever done as an artist. And the honour it is to be in a room with not, you know, hundreds of people like you do at a stand-up show, but to be with a young child who's been unwell or who is possibly getting their burn bandages changed for the week um, my job, my job, and the work of the clown doctoring is to distract them, and 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 shift the room from the medical uh, help to the soul help, mm-hmm. um, the 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 joy, the joy help. And so, you know, we saw with COVID in the last couple of years, for a good year, we couldn't do work inside the hospital, and so we had to resort to Zoom. <laughs> It's it's a real honour to be able to sit with a child on Zoom and make them laugh in any possible way and be silly and make fart sounds and poo jokes. I, I can't believe how children and even dads love fart jokes, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and there's mum just, you know, oh, here we go again. But, you know, it's just the simplest joy that we bring into hospitals just to shift the room, just to give them five minutes to break the routine that they sit with for 24 hours. And, and that changes changes everything bodily, emotionally, and it's not just for the kids and for the families but also for the staff as well because they, they also need some joy in the work they do, that they do. How has it changed the way you think about yourself as a performer, this being a clown doctor? Oh, it's uh, the last couple of years I've had to think about, you know, why I became a performer and the first probably good decade it was for the fame and to be a star and to prove my mum that I can do this in this industry. And audience numbers change. So you could perform to 20, 10, 100, 4,000 people in the audience. But then when I think about clown doctoring and, and working one-on-one, I just know that it gives me the greatest joy that I can have this intimacy with someone, a, a connection with someone that no one needs to see. And that was very reaffirming for me as an artist that the only person that needs to see me is this child or this family and and I, and I don't need validation of the work that I do. And, you know, when you do stand up, you need that applause, you know. You need the reviews, you need, um, you need those stars, you need to sell out. But when you're in that room or in that space, um, it reaffirms why I became an artist. 
A project you've been working on for a few years now, Diana, is called Fee and Me, about a Vietnamese-Australian girl growing up in a single-mum family in Springvale. Like, where could this idea come from? Um, so your mum actually uh, has has a role in, in Fee and Me, the web series yes. that you created. Well, what role yes. did you give her? Well, well, I made that dream come true because when I did Miss Saigon, after she saw me Miss Saigon, she said, look, if they're looking for any actors, let me know. And so I just remember that and I just remembered my mum wanted an active part in my career. And so we got her a role where she owed money to the uh, pimp in the web series and the interaction is that she's in the fur restaurant and she sees the pimp and then she has to do this frantic, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, and run out of the door. And and I have caught my mum watching herself on replay. Uh, yeah, so my mum um, is fully supportive of my career now. now that she has and a role. Pop, that's it. And, you know, when we make Fear Me to TV show, we'll pop, we'll, we can hopefully give her an extra 20 seconds. <laughs> yeah. Diana, I have really loved hearing your story and about your mum. Thank you so yes. much for, for being our guest on Conversations. Oh, thanks, Sarah. Thanks for having me on. Diana Nguyen was my guest on Conversations today and Diana is now working on turning that web series Fee and Me into a TV series so keep a look out for that and she'll be touring next year with her own comedy show. Big thanks as always to the Conversations team, our executive producer Carmel Rooney and producers Nicola Harrison, Maggie Morris and Alice Moldovan. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Hi, I'm Jonathan Green and I'm in Paris with a burning question. Taxi! Yeah, bonjour. How many Parisians live within five minutes of a bakery? No, I don't have a Oh. You're <sighs> baguette. Oh, really? Uh, à gauche. À droite. Well, that's extraordinary. Thanks. No, no, no. This and other secrets of the world revealed in a new season of Return Ticket, the travel podcast that takes you on journeys of the mind. <laughs> In this new season, we're off to Paris, Venice, Kuala Lumpur, Las Vegas and Timbuktu. Yes, that's right, Timbuktu. Where even is that? Return ticket. Subscribe on the ABC Listen app.